Growing Up, our brand new resource for churches and parents is out now. Woohoo! With Sunday school sessions, training videos, podcast episodes for parents and one for the whole family. All there to help our children navigate the confusion, filter the messages they're surrounded by and hear God's good story. All our Growing Up resources point to the Heavenly Father who loves our children even more than we do and has the answer to their biggest questions about who they are and how to live. Together, as families and churches, we can support each other to start good conversations about bodies, gender and marriage so our children can grow up hearing God's good story. Head over to the website faithinkids.org and find out all the details about growing up. What I've seen increasingly... You know, children are being encouraged to to find their identity in you know, sexual desires coming in in the objects of their affections, and to sort of define themselves in those terms. Even though all the evidence is that sexuality is particularly fluid in <laughs> the life of teenagers, and so therefore, to were to sort of label yourself for life or to be sort of trying to find a, a label that describes you and your sexual feelings age 13 can be a particularly difficult thing to do because they may well change when you're 14, 15, 16, 17, 18 or not. But there's a huge pressure to self-identify in a way that can be really confusing, can put a huge amount of pressure on somebody that is just trying to get their mind around these new powerful feelings that are coming into their life. Hello, this is the Faith in Parents podcast brought to you by Faith in Kids. My name is Ed. This is the beginning of a new series, a new start, a new beginning. I'm joined by Ed. Who are you? Um, I'm a Shaw, member of the Shaw family. Um, I'm a son and an uncle. I'm a pastor of a church in Bristol. I'm ministry director of Living Out. I write things. I read things. I love West Wing. (laughs) That's all you need to know, really. And that's me. (laughs) Okay. We are doing... Answers to who am I? Uh, That is what this series is about. Who am I? Ed, why is this a thing? Why is it worth talking about who am I and the answers to that question? Well, because it is a question we're asked quite a lot. I mean, you are asked to introduce yourself. You know, so often you'll begin a social interaction like a podcast with the sort of thing we've just been going through. You know, who am I? These are the things you need to know about me. But also, we do spend a lot of time asking that question internally, trying to work out who we are, trying to work out. Uh, how we relate to the world around us, how we fit into the world around us, what gives us value, what is good about us, what isn't good about us. All of those are questions that we're struggling with, that we're asking right from early on in our life, right to the end of our lives. To be human is to find a place of belonging. We're tribal by nature. I'd love to tell you that deep in the history of time, it mattered which hunter-gatherer crew you were part of. 
but we all feel a sense of belonging. And maybe in other cultures, it's easy to find. Rwanda had a defining feature of the whole country being divided horrendously into Tutsis and Hutus. Northern Ireland is divided into nationalists and Republicans. And a Northern Irish friend of mine, as I was endlessly asking her questions, just said, Ed, I cannot believe you don't see that in England it's just simply class. You are absolutely defined by it. You work it out when someone walks into a room and within two sentences you confirm it. Perhaps in other cultures it's accents in the UK. We, We can work out to within, I don't know, 10 miles where someone's from. What do you even just have it? I can remember sitting outside Winchester Cathedral, nice middle class place to be, with a New Zealand friend, New Zealander, and we're talking about class, and I was saying, I can tell you everybody's class that walks past just by what they're wearing. And you could. It's such a big identity marker in the UK, just even by what people wear. Fun game on, on the tube in London. Can you work out people's nationality? You know, when a group of 20 school children come in, you know they're going to be from a different country or they're your own. You can work. You, the fun game is, are they French, Italian, British, German, Japanese, Chinese? Good games. Ed, to be talking about Christianity in terms of identity, I don't think it's a label we're, we're often used to hearing as starkly as this. We're used to saying, I'm a Christian. You know, that is a label we give ourselves. It is a tribe we might feel we belong to. And there are further labels we could give. Is this a truly Christian thing? Yeah, I mean, I think identity, identity politics and some of the language around identity feels like quite a contemporary thing and can be dismissed as just something we're worrying about today. But if you go back to the beginning of the Bible, if you follow through the Bible story, you'll see on almost every page that, that God is wanting his people to have an identity, to have an answer to the question, who am I, that's grounded in him. So Genesis chapter one, we're told we're created in God's image. And that is giving us an identity that sets us apart from the rest of creation by being those who are who are marked out by being like God, by being his children, by having a family resemblance to uh, the God who created us. So right from the first couple of pages of the Bible, uh, God is gifting human beings with an identity that's different to the creation around them. And then as the Bible story unfolds, he's choosing particular people and giving them an identity as his people, um, as his chosen people. He's calling uh, people to himself and saying, you need to relate to me as your dad. You are my children. And throughout scripture, God is saying, well, you know, the key question is, that you need to ask and answer as human beings is who am I? Or actually even better put is whose am I? And your mind says God on every page of scripture. You belong to me. You're my children. You're dearly loved. And that is how you are to think of yourself. That is how you're to relate to me. That is how you're to relate to the world around you. And also I think as parents, it's easy to forget, take for granted what lies behind all parenting is we belong together. I am your parent. You are my child. So before we talk about discipline, before we talk about aspiration, before we talk about hopes and fears, before we talk about health, certificates, hobbies, we belong together. The basis of every conversation we have, the, the basis of society is you find your home with me. Your security 
is based on belonging to this family. You will not be cast out. How school goes today is not the basis of how you walk in the door at the end. You will always find love here. We will come on later to the language in the Bible that helps us understand that and one leads to the other and vice versa. But to be a parent, I think, is to say, I understand identity. It's just in the air we breathe of our families. A family is a place of belonging and identity. And it's a great context, isn't it, to talk about identity in the context of parenting, because, as you've already pointed out, parenting is the great illustration that we have in Scripture of, of what identity is like, what it's formed on. So, you know, I love, I love seeing on a Sunday children arriving with their parents because for me, because I've read the Bible, it's a picture of what my relationship with God is like. So I can think of, you know, on Sunday, a dad called Sam arriving with his son, Nathan, sleeping, cradled in his arms. That is a picture to me of what it is to be God's child, to be safe in someone else's arms, to be carried around, to be supported. And I just think it's beautiful that the very, you know, the very sort of pictures that the Bible gives us to help us most appreciate who we are in relationship to God is the language of parent-child, father-child. And so when we see parents interacting well with their children, looking after, caring for their children, we've been given visual reminders in creation of who we are, how we should relate to God in Christ. So in the Bible, while while it would be easy for us to turn to the language of belonging, you've, you've labelled some of them. You are my people. I am your shepherd. You are my chosen people. You are saved. You are created. You are redeemed. You are a people who belong in the new creation. All of that is identity language. The one you're picking up on and that you're saying resonates most for most of us is that father child language yeah yeah because i think oh we know when you go to when you go to a story like you know why is the story of the prodigal son so powerful to us all because it uses the language of father child and it ends you know you, you know it, at its heart is the father running to meet his child and we connect with that because We've either experienced that ourselves wonderfully in good parenting, or we felt the lack of it ourselves in bad parenting, and therefore it's we just wanted to connect with that language and and that imagery because it is the most powerful imagery available, and it is there to point us to the fact that there is there always will be a father God running to meet us in His Son Jesus Christ, whatever we've done, whatever our experience of parenting has been, and. That, that's one of the amazing things the Bible and Christianity offers, isn't it? In contrast to anybody, anything else, a, a father who's always running to meet us, always willing to welcome us, welcome us home. 1 John 3 verse 1 says, See what great love the Father has lavished on us that we should be called children of God, and that is what we are. That would be the verse I would go to for anyone who was just wanting to say this identity language what do, is it is it there is this just a cultural pushback is this newfangled that is what you are it's not that is what you do or that is what you believe or this is what you spend an hour each week doing this is who we are to be a christian 
is not a hobby like a rugby player or a model railway builder. It, it's also just not a, it's not an address. It's not a surname. It's, it's the fabric of who we are. We are children of God. Is there a verse, Ed, that you would go to just to find this language of identity? I love one of Paul's most personal verses in Galatians 2 verse 20. Famously, he writes, I've been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. And, and that's, you know, binding up Paul's identity in the fact that he is, his life has been caught up in Christ's life, that um, his identity is with Jesus and that that has been sort of proved in history through Jesus sacrificing himself on the cross. But that that sacrifice on the cross doesn't just mean that he's forgiven. It means that his whole identity is now caught up in God, in Christ, and in what they've done for him. And that is a really personal and a really felt thing. Um, and I love how, how Paul puts it there in Galatians 2 verse 20. Thanks, Ed. Just to pause our conversation for a moment and look ahead to our next episode, where we'll be seeing how identity helps us to navigate the hot issue of gender identity and gender dysphoria. In that next episode, Andrew Bunt will be telling us his personal experience. And here he is sharing a little of how Jesus helped him to answer the question, who am I? For me, this is in a sense of a very, or has been a very real life personal topic, very impacted by myself in a few different ways and a few different aspects of my life. There was a time in my childhood where I very much believed that I was a girl trapped in a boy's body. I remember it so vividly because I remember the fear that I would get pregnant and that it would get found out. Obviously, not know how these things work, but my fear was if I get pregnant, everyone will know actually I'm a girl trapped in a boy's body. And that was a very, I remember a very kind of, um, profound thing I really I really thought that was true I was quite fearful of that this was you know quite a number of years ago I didn't really know of people talking about those kind of things so I just kind of kept quiet about it and, and actually Andrew, sorry what what age was that that memory? I think was going to upper primary end of primary I think so nine through to 11 maybe and then as I went, went into my teenage years into puberty that kind of naturally went away and as we'll come to talk later that's not an unusual experience for something of like that childhood and the fact to go away during teen years and I look back now at that, and I think what happened to me there, I was very much kind of what we might call gender non-conforming, as in I didn't match up to gender stereotypes, what boys are like, in almost all the ways, in a sense. While all the boys were playing football at school with their, the other boys, I was the lone boy with the girls trying and failing to do handstands against the hedge, stuff like that. All my close friends were girls, and just all my likes and dislikes, all the stereotypical stuff, very much lined up with girls rather than boys and what people expected. And I think that just meant I couldn't compute how I could be a boy if that was how I found myself to be. And so I began to come to the conclusion that must mean I'm a girl trapped in a boy's body. That kind of feeling went naturally away, as I said, kind of as I went into um, my teenage years. But then even more recent years, I really had to wrestle with this thing of gender as well. I came to a realisation that although I wasn't still thinking I was a girl trapped in a boy's body or really a man's body, I was deeply uncomfortable with my identity as a man. And actually kind of, I guess, was living with a sense of not being a real man, not kind of making the cut. I noticed I would say things, uh, talking to a group of female friends, I'd say things like, well, he would say that, he's a man. The implication clearly being the men are over there, and I'm not a woman, but somehow I'm not a man either. I'm not kind of in that group. Things like single-sex environments were literally my worst nightmare. I would avoid them 
anywhere I could, really. And to be honest, I harboured this secret desire that I would be invited to a friend's hen party or something. Although I didn't think of myself as being a woman, I wanted, in a sense, to be part of that group because where I felt safe, maybe, rather than with guys. And so I've had to really process that. And actually, God wonderfully has taken me on a, a wonderful journey of coming to realise now I'm a man because he says I'm a man. That's a solid, static, unchangeable thing he's given to me. And actually, that allows me to embrace my likes, dislikes, my personality, the things that might be deemed traditionally feminine. It doesn't change the fact I'm a man. And so I guess even in recent years, I've been on a journey of growing comfortable with both my identity as a man, but also my unique kind of personalities we all have. And the fact that that's not traditionally masculine is okay. God's made me the way. He delights in me as I am. So, Andrew, does that does that mean that it's not just you've grown out of it or you've got used to it, but it is Christian faith that has changed how you feel? Yeah, certainly in my more recent kind of wrestling with this as an adult, absolutely, actually. And it was realising that Genesis one twenty seven says that I'm a man because God has created me that way. It's given to me in my body. It's part of how he's created me. And that being a man isn't something you create through performance or you earn by acting a certain way, but it's true of me because of how God's made what he says of me. And that gives me the freedom to embrace those other things. So I talk about learning what God says about who I am has given me the freedom to embrace how I am. So absolutely, that that biblical foundation, that, that truth of God as creator, what he says about me, has been the, the great releasing freedom. Back to Ed Shaw. Ed, why is seeking our identity in Jesus important for us as parents? Growing up is so often, isn't it, finding, it's trying to find your identity. It's trying to f- work out how you fit into your family. It's trying to work in how you fit into your class uh, at school. It's trying to work out how you fit into friendship groups. It is trying to work out who you are at many, many levels. And what's so difficult about being a child, and in particular about being a teenager, is is how changeable all those things are and how much change and how many choices you face as you grow up. And we can probably all remember that, how confusing it was to answer the question, you know, who am I? To answer the question, where do I fit in? Where do I belong? And the beautiful thing about what we've been talking about is that it's something you can build up in your child from an early age, an identity in Christ. And it's something that will last whatever happens to them. It will be there when they are trying to fit into you know, their primary school. It'll be there when they have to make massive choices about their life when they go to secondary school. It'll be there when they meet with success, but also when they meet with failure, when plans don't quite work out. You you can give them something that will last and something that will see them through whatever happens to them, which is exactly what you want to do as parents, isn't it? You want to give your children something that will last, something that will help them whatever happens, something that will survive even if you're not around. I mean, that's that's what we're all looking for. That's what we all want to pass on to our kids. And the one thing as it were, fits that, can do that, is an identity that's rooted in God and an identity that's rooted in being a child of God, an adopted child, a sibling to Christ. Any other identity that we give them, that we help them to develop, and there'll be other markers that we do want to, identity markers that we do want to give them, that we do want them to know about. But the problem is with all those other identity markers is that they can change. They can be undermined they can pass away. This is the one thing that can last. This is the one thing that can survive and that can last till their dying day. So it's the, it's the great gift you can give your kids. So 
We may be thinking it sounds theoretical and it even sounds difficult, but because we have this picture of father-child language in the Bible, it means we get to work out where does where does parent-child work out in everyday life. So, for instance, with an under two, we have all seen how it is that as the parent takes the child they stop crying. The picture you just gave, walking into church with a child, when they wake up, they'll see the face they know and they'll go back to sleep. I know where I am. I know who I'm with. I'm safe. They can't say any of that, but we know that's the case. In the same way with an under two, from the earliest days, we pray with them. We sing with them. We sing the songs. I used to sing, the Lord is my shepherd to my children. And I'm sure there'll be a day when they come home and say, Dad, I heard that song today. I don't think you were singing the same song. (laughs) Is that from the earliest days, we find ways to say you are safe. And I want you to hear of Jesus Christ. As they go off to primary school, we are used to saying, I'll collect you at the end. I'll be here at the end. You're safe. Just remember, I'm coming back soon. We use the same language with our children. You are not going into school alone. Jesus Christ goes with you. He has you. He is safe. You are safe with him. In secondary school, when our children are desperately trying to work out who they are, am I in the football team? Am I, who's my friendship group? Am I a mathematician? Am I an artist? Am I academically gifted or or am I a creative? As parents of a teenager, we get to say, you're dearly loved. You are forgiven. You belong. God has you. He decides who you are. The labels others give you do not matter. The unkind words others say do not matter because God speaks words of truth and kindness. And that's great comfort, isn't it? Parents, you, parents listening in, you, your job is just to be a pale imitation. That's all, you know, that's all that you can be. Your job is to be a pale imitation of the fatherly love of God of the parental love that's offered in the Bible. You, you know, that, that's your job. You're a pale imitation of, you know, when, the, when, you, when you give your kids a hug, it's just a pale imitation of the hug that God wants to give them. When you're encouraging them, it's a pale imitation. Of the, you know, when everything you do is just meant to be a pale imitation of God's love for them. And I, it's sometimes worth pointing out that you just doing, you're just providing the pale imitation and that actually anything that you say that's that's positive, any love that you offer them is just is just a pale imitation of what you're meant to point them to. And Ed, what you're really doing is is you're giving us a working definition of what Christian parenting is. You know, if you, you can at home wonder what is a definition of parenting. Uh, when I've done this exercise with parents in seminars, w- what you get back is providing safety, providing love, unconditional love, providing boundaries, providing discipline. A-, a working definition of Christian parenting is, I want to be a pale imitation of our Heavenly Father. I want to be a parent like he has parented me. Unconditional love, forgiveness, care, wisdom, instruction. I want to do it. And I- and perhaps to Christian parenting is, I want to tell my child that's what I'm doing. We had an interview with Alan Witchells a few episodes ago. I think we called it A Beginner's Guide to Christian Parenting. He said that in his family, every evening, now with his teenage children, they tend to pray the same prayer. It's become a family tradition. 
Mummy loves you, Daddy loves you, God loves you more. They've always prayed it with their children. You know, that is, that is his way of working out. I just want you to know every day I'm doing for you after what God has done for me and continues to do for you. And that is so important because part of growing up, isn't it, is getting to that point where you realise your parents aren't going to be around forever or aren't completely omnipotent or untrustworthy. And at that point, you know, if you're a Christian, you can point them to somebody who is what you are failing to be. And then, you know, and it's the same thing have the same at school with friends, that their friends aren't as reliable and as trustworthy and as brilliant as they perhaps first thought them to be. And again, you can point them to a friend, Jesus, who is the perfect friend. So, you know, it is so helpful, isn't it, to, to know that, I mean, you know, even even your even your failings and when your kids discover your failings, as they do, uh, this is an opportunity, that is an opportunity to point them to to someone who won't fail them, who won't let them down, who will be with them in a way that you won't always be able to be. And Ed, you, you gave a moving example of, of how that has worked out in your life in moments of difficulty with your parents. Yes, yeah, so I, age five, had a sister who, younger me, he died when she was two months old. And so I had that experience at quite a young age of realising that my parents were limited in what they could and could not protect me from. And I saw my parents cry at a really early age. And I saw, you know, I just had that experience that perhaps happens more gradually for a lot of kids over a longer period of time of just recognizing the limitations to my parents. It happened in some ways for me all in one day. And I think what was beautiful about what my parents did in those circumstances was help me recognize how trustworthy God was and how they couldn't help me in some circumstances, but Jesus could. So one example was soon after my sister died, I started to have nightmares in which she would reappear alive, which was pretty difficult for a five, six-year-old to cope with. And I recognised that she couldn't do anything to stop me dreaming things, but we could pray to Jesus every night that those dreams wouldn't come back. And we did pray to Jesus every night and those dreams didn't come back. But also they were really good at not promising me things that they couldn't promise me. So again, I think when my mum was pregnant with my younger brother, soon after my sister uh, died, I asked with a sort of five-year-old sensitivity her to sort of promise me that this baby wouldn't die too. And she was beautifully honest in saying, no, I can't promise you that. And again, there's a lot of parents I think probably would have made the promise because what damage would it have done? it probably would have worked out. But it was another opportunity to point me to her limits, their limits, and an opportunity to point me to the limitless power and love of God. And certainly, you know, all my... Well, you know, I know that I first came to really trust in Jesus around the time of my sister's death because he was trustworthy, completely reliable, able to promise and do for me things which I was realising at a young age my parents couldn't. And you know, one of the things we need to do, isn't it, as parents, is is point our children to our limitations, but then point them to a God who is limitless in what he can do and where he can be and how much he loves us. There is something in parenting that craves being the rock to our children and finding, revealing our 
inadequacies and failings very difficult. But, you know, an, an obvious example would be it's hard to say sorry to our children, perhaps more than it is to say sorry to our friends, because we're just so clear with our friends. They'll keep being our friends. And it's a sign of friendship that we say sorry to our children. I think there's something very difficult about saying sorry, because it's just admitting I'm not the parent I wish I was. I'm not the stability I want to, to be. I'm not the perfect role model I want to be. To be a Christian parent is to be hardwired, to know it's a good thing to show inability and weakness because it points them to the one who is better. And yeah, and you just want to wean, as you, you know, you wean your child, don't you, off you. breast milk. Yeah, but you need to wean, but also you need to wean, you need to wean your child off, off you. Yeah. And that, you know, so it's not a sort of, you know, it, what we're not saying is, you know, as soon as possible, you tell your children that they can't depend on you, you're completely untrustworthy, they're on their own. But you are trying to wean your child off a wrong understanding that you're omnipotent to a right understanding that God is. And you're trying to wean your child off thinking that you are completely limitless in your love and care because you're not, but you want them to realize that God is completely limitless in the love and care that he provides. And you're there just to be a picture, not the reality. We've talked about something of that security. I wonder if we bring to mind some other places where this story of identity could be helpful in our parenting. You've touched on failure. If our children love a particular sport, then that can become their identity. They can think of them. I think it's common in school. You know, if you're in the school football team, if you're in the school rugby team, it gives you a reputation. It gives you an identity that is positive. You're more likely to be respected. In the teenage years, to have a boyfriend or a girlfriend is to belong. It is to, it is to think you have a degree of safety. Are, are, there, are there other obvious places you, you, you think our children can find their identity, Ed? Well, obviously, increasingly, you know, children are being encouraged to to find their identity in, you know, sexual desires coming in, in the objects of their affections and to sort of define themselves in those terms, even though all the evidence is that sexuality is particularly fluid in <laughs> the life of teenagers. And so therefore, so it were to sort of label yourself for life or to be sort of trying to find a, a label that describes you and your sexual feelings age 13 can be a particularly difficult thing to do because they may well change when you're 14, 15, 16, 17, 18 or not. But there's a huge pressure to self-identify in a way that can be really confusing, can put a huge amount of pressure on somebody that is just trying to get their mind around these new powerful feelings that are coming into their life. And to try and, as it were, define themselves in a way that then will last them the rest of their life is a huge amount of pressure to put on them. So one of the things I love about being a Christian and having an identity that's rooted in what God thinks of you and how God feels towards you, rather than anything you might think or anything you might feel, is that it's something that can last. And it's something that doesn't change. Uh, and it's something that will be there uh, forever and is certain and sure because it's based on him not on you based on what he feels not on what you feel our feelings change as human beings constantly his feelings to us don't change and it's a gift to receive that and to know that 
and not to be on a constant pursuit of an identity marker that may well change or a group of people that may well accept you one day and reject you the next. And there is, I feel like it's only fair to reveal a downside to the language of identity as a parent, which is if we would prefer our children to label themselves, our family to label themselves as we are churchgoers, we are Christian in the sense of we're not a Buddhist or we're not an atheist. If we were to think of Christianity as being good behaviours, we are trying to raise our children to act Christianly. The advantage of all of these labels is it won't exclude our children. It won't stop them from being part of the predominant culture in their school, community, country. There is a problem, isn't there, Ed, that if we raise our children to no identity, they will therefore not belong. Yeah, I mean... (laughs) People who have an identity that's caught up in what the credit god of the universe thinks about them and says about them and feels about them as articulated in the gospel story are going to be odd because that's not many people in UK society today are taking God at his word in forming their identity. And it's going to make us feel and look and sound Odd. And it's mean we're going to be sitting quite loose to a lot of the identity markers that other people in the world today think are much more significant. And that is going to mean that there is a, a real dissonance for us as parents and for our children. We're, we're going to struggle to fit in, which is what authentic Christians have always done or felt. You know, read the New Testament. It's full of comfort, encouragement, advice for believers who are struggling to fit into society. You know, I, I love 1 Peter as a letter because it's all about what it's like to be a Christian living in a society in which you struggle to fit in because you are different in identity terms and that inevitably works out in your beliefs and behaviours in a way that the society around you is baffled by. But the other thing I like about 1 Peter is that although society is baffled by it and pushes against it, there's also a sense in which it's that difference that intrigues them too. And it's that difference that asks them, that gets them asking you questions about why you think and, and live differently and might mean that they then ask you to give the reason for the hope that you have in Jesus Church has always grown. Christians have always made the biggest impact in the world when we have been different uh, to the world around us and where people have seen that contrast, have been baffled by it and also then wanted to ask questions about why it's so. But to be a parent is to want our children to flourish. And the Christian argument is to belong to Christ is true human flourishing. So the story of the New Testament consistently is Christians are willing to suffer because they're holding tight to what gives life. And, and I think as parents, I, I suspect we, we live with that for other things. We know that to be on the best football team is going to require training. To get the best exam results is going to require a revision plan and is going to require, you know, you, you hear about families who change a holiday the year of GCSEs or A-levels to, to give them more chance to revise. 
we are used to the idea of sacrifice for gain. And the New Testament is very used to the idea. But it's a spiritual battle. So this might feel to a parent as it's a step too far. I'd rather my children weren't known. I'd rather our family wasn't known as the really serious Christian. Yeah, and it becomes then to, do you want to give your child an inheritance that will last? Uh, you know, and I, I imagine there are a lot of parents who have perhaps given some thought into planning how they can pass on, you know, money and other assets to their children or an education that will last them, you know, long term. Or, you know, that, so many of your conversations, your thoughts and concerns around your children are, or what can I pass on to them that will last? Is there an inheritance I can give them that will last? We do know, don't we, as Christians, that the only inheritance that will last our kids eternally is being part of God's family, being his child, seeing themselves, feeling that reality, living out that reality. That is the inheritance that lasts. That's the only thing of ultimate lasting value we can pass on to our children. And so think of all the time you've put into other things you want to pass on to. This is the, this is the thing that, that is most important because this is the only thing that will have a lasting and eternal impact. This series is looking at this. This is the beginning of a series answering the question, who am I? Because the goal is that our parenting has an eternal impact. We are going to walk through these issues that this touches on, like God made me male or female, I live in a hurting world where things don't work as they should and things are disappointing. We're going to look at issues of friendship and sexuality because this is how God made us. This is part of the who am I story and it's also hard for parents to discuss with their children. We want to make that easier. We want these podcasts to equip parents to have these conversations so that we play our part in giving our children an eternal future. Ed, would you be willing to pray? Because there is someone who does the bigger part. Let's pray. Father God, thank you that well, thank you that we can come to you anytime, any place, anywhere, and call you Father and know that you're listening and know that you're willing and wanting to help us. And we just pray for your help, for us to inhabit our identity as your dearly loved children, for us to run to you as children run to their parents, and for us to trust in you to provide everything we need, particularly as we seek to be pale imitations in the families you've put us in of your love, your care, your willingness to lay down your life for others. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Ed. Thank you for joining us. Join us for the beginning of the series when the next one drops. Goodbye. Goodbye. Goodbye.